Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. So we are here today on April 22nd to do our weekly COVID-19 update with Dr. Dean and Dr. Ellen. So Dr. Dean, what's the latest in COVID-19 news for this last week? Well, I think most of the news has been talking about how, to put a positive spin on it, that the social distancing has worked really well. And in many parts of the country, we've flattened the curve. And that means that everybody's getting a little antsy and thinking that, why are we doing all this social distancing? It's really an imposition on people's lives, and maybe we should start getting back to normal. So we're having those discussions. And of course, what we're really worried about is that that might lead to a rebound in number of cases. Right. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. I think that it is hard when people are out of work and they're not having a steady paycheck come in and and they see that the curve is flat to think, why are we still doing this? But obviously there's problems with that, which we can get into. So some states are reopening businesses slowly in a measured fashion, Um, mostly I think in the South so far are the ones that are talking about doing this. What can we expect to see happen once we start reopening slowly? Well, I think you mentioned the key word, which is measured fashion. So if you just start opening everything up, we can predict that there'll be a a severe rebound. But it's possible that you could do this in a stepwise fashion that is logical and leads to limited increase in social interactions, and that this may not result in a large increase in number of cases. Earlier this week, I think one or two days ago, the director of the CDC said that he expected a second wave in winter that was worse. Why did he say this and what what did that come from? Well, I think two of the concerns that um, we have about it returning in winter is that we know that this is a winter respiratory virus. So we expect increased transmission in the winter. So we might get a respite over the summer just due to the weather, just due to the temperature and humidity resulting in um, decreased viral survival, but then an increase um, in the winter. And then this may coincide with other respiratory viruses that we know increase over the winter, such as influenza. And if we get these two occurring together, I mean, that could be an explosive combination. Mm, More sick people, more people requiring hospitalization when they're co-infected. Is that what you mean by that? Well, not just that they're co-infected, but even the additive issue that you have people with with a flu season coming on and a coronavirus season coming on, that really, do we really have the, the surge capacity to handle that? I see. Okay. Some other stuff that came out the last week was with regards to antibody testing and some preliminary data that we're seeing. Um, In California, Stanford University looked at Santa Clara County and then University of Southern California and the LA County of Department of Public Health looked at some studies that they've done down there. And it seemed like both studies showed somewhere between two to five percent of their study sample showing this serology that would would 
indicate immunity to COVID-19, if I was interpreting that correctly. What do you take away from those studies? Yeah, so it's not just measuring immunity, but we're also correlating that with meaning that they've had past infections. So that's why they are immune. And what's remarkable, I think, with these two studies that are preliminary is that they had very similar results. And so that's reassuring in that they're probably measuring the same thing. So what they're showing is about 4% of the population has been infected, and that's way below the number of cases that have been reported. And we're pretty sure this is because we've had such limitations in terms of the, the swab testing, the PCR testing for acute infection. And that was just so limited that we only restricted that to the more severe hospitalized cases. So there's more mild disease that's been going on in the community. Asymptomatic infection has been occurring. And I think that's the significance of these studies. But the 4% immunity is really not high enough to prevent widespread transmission. Right. And that's what I want to talk about next. I also wanted to just clarify that that was done in California in states that saw more disease, like New York, for example, would we expect that number to be higher in those states? I think so. Since we didn't see a flattening of the curve in those states, in in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut, um, we would expect a higher proportion of the population to be infected. So we'll wait for those serologic studies to come out of there. Okay, perfect. So let's just say, theoretically, that the true number of people that have been exposed to the virus and developed those antibodies is, like you said, 4%. Let's just assume that that to be true, even though these are just preliminary studies. What number, what percentage of people within the community need to have those antibodies or have been exposed in order to develop herd immunity that people talk about? Well, you know, we've talked a lot about the R naught, the the really the rate of transmission, and that depends on the proportion of the community that is susceptible to infection, but it's also dependent on the amount of social interaction that we all have. So under the current situation where we have these severe social distancing measures in place, we can really limit transmission even with a, a large proportion of the population susceptible. But I'm talking like normal, like before all of this happened, let's say for like, you know, measles or some of those other disorders that we have vaccines against, what is the percentage of people that we want to be immune? So you'd have to get up to about like 80 or 90 percent of the population immune. So it's going to take a long time to get there. And to get there, of course, that means more people getting sick more people being admitted to the hospital, into the ICU, and that's why we need to make sure that this doesn't all happen at once so that we have that bed capacity available to take care of patients when it's needed. Right. So we are assuming 4%, although we don't know that number. We're a very, very long way away from 80 to 90%. Right. But there's intermediate measures. So let's say that you decrease some of the restrictions, but there's no, for example, sporting events or things that are going to attract like 10,000 or 100,000 people to one event. So you limit that. And maybe you have other limitations. And maybe you have limitations, as I've seen a lot of people at this point. One of the main things I hear people talking about impacting their personal lives is they want to get their hair cut, right? So, so. People have talked about, like, if you go to get your hair cut, it's just like a one-on-one interaction, right? You're not in a hair salon with, like, a whole bunch of people. 
I think you're talking about your own personal experience. I'm actually looking at your beautiful pink hair today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's something special that I did during (laughs) COVID-19. Yeah, okay, so maybe I see what you're saying, more measured introduction into socialization. So you're you're maybe seeing your immediate family members or you're starting to see maybe some extended family members and your hairdresser, but you're not going to concerts, basketball games. Right, right. Maybe a limited um, back to school for kids, but maybe they're not in school in such large class sizes or not as much interaction with other kids. Yeah. But what seems to be the most obvious way to get that immunity up to a larger percentage is still a vaccine. Well, that's the easier way to do it. If it's a safe and effective vaccine, you get immunity without people getting ill. So that makes a lot of sense. Right. And so how is the vaccine coming? I know that we are testing it in humans now, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the first clinical trials started just last month. um, And we'll see how, how soon we get start getting results from that. Tell us a little bit about the timeline, because even from the very beginning, you have said that this is going to take a minimum of 18, you know, 12 to 18 months. Mm-hmm. Why? Why is that? So you start off and your first studies is it's a new vaccine and you want to make sure it's safe and you want to make sure you get the dose right. So you just do a handful of people, 5, 10, 20 people, and then maybe you up the dose if it looks safe. So you want to follow them for a few days. So that's going to take a week or two just to gather that safety information. And then you expect them to develop an immune response as early as two weeks, but probably peaking about four weeks after immunization. So there's a two to four week delay. And then you want to follow their antibodies, their immune response to see if it's sustained. So you're going to do blood tests then also at like maybe three months and six months afterwards But you can go on to the next step before you get that, maybe after a month after you start testing. And then you start enrolling maybe 100 or 1,000 people in in each group for the doses, and you follow them for less common side effects. But you can see that you need to follow these patients and the antibody values for months before you'd even pull the trigger on manufacturing it in large quantities to deliver to people. Obviously, it's going to be a worldwide, highly desired vaccine, and so you want to make sure it's really, really safe before you pull the trigger on mass immunization. Right. I mean, the last thing we want to do is have a vaccine that's released that we're not fully confident is safe and effective because then people will lose confidence in it if if there are any concerns in those areas. We got some great listener questions this week, and I thought we could just jump into those. We are starting to see definitely in our communities everywhere some more divisiveness about continuing the shutdown. We have seen protests saying that they want to reopen um, businesses. And so one listener asked how she explains in a scientific way to people that may not agree with her why she is continuing to support social distancing. So one of the things about social distancing that has resulted in less transmission is it's been successful. In California, this has been very successful. And then people don't see the large number of cases and they think, well, it's not necessary. But that's like saying you're like driving safely and you're not wearing a seatbelt. And, you know, why? maybe we don't need to wear seatbelts or I can drive drunk or you can drive without a car without an airbag or something because you haven't gotten in an accident. I mean, we've been doing the right thing, and that's resulted in saving lives and decreasing illness. 
And so that's the reason that we need to be very careful when we back off from these measures. Yeah. And you need to think about all of the people that you love, you know, so much in your life and you want to protect. Those are the most vulnerable people, like in our age group, maybe our parents, maybe grandparents. And um, really, I think just being selfless in the situation for them is important, too. And when you say our age group, you're speaking for you because because <laughs> I'm speaking I'm for me to... in my age group. <laughs> and that's why Dr. Dean and I are not recording in person anymore because I am trying to protect his age group, too. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so another question I got, I thought this was a good one. I only know one person that is a closer friend of mine who's tested positive for COVID-19 in Southern California, and he really just had GI symptoms initially and a, and a cough, so diarrhea. And so this parent was asking if her kid has GI symptoms out of nowhere, is this reason enough to get tested? You know, the initial reports out of China showed that about 4% of people had gastrointestinal symptoms such as vomiting and diarrhea. There's been some other studies since then that looks like the proportion is, is higher than that, maybe 10%. But really, the vast majority of people who are infected also have fever and cough, and then they might also have um, vomiting and diarrhea. So we're really still looking at fever and cough as the primary drivers to think about this as, as this being the cause of that illness. The next question was saying, is there one symptom that's the most important to recognize? Say their kid has fever, cough, but is otherwise doing well, eating and drinking normally. Is there one symptom that says, maybe this is more of an emergency. Maybe I need to go into the emergency room and get tested and possibly seek higher level of care. The major complication of this illness is pneumonia and severe pneumonia. And so that'll manifest as shortness of breath or difficulty breathing. So the main thing I would look out for is any kind of difficulty breathing. And this is similar to other illnesses too. If your child is having difficulty breathing, um, bring them in. They need to be seen. Yeah, and kids can really handle a lot of symptoms. And so shortness of breath in kids may be that you're noticing they're not really wanting to speak in full sentences if they're older. In little kids, it might be their nostrils flaring out or their head bobbing or their little area in their throat sucking in or, or what we call retractions, which is sucking in under the rib cage. So those are all more subtle signs that sometimes kids show when they can't explain to you as well that they're feeling short of breath. Right, or they're having difficulty with breast or bottle feeding because just mm -hmm. having something in their mouth, they need, they need to have their mouth open to get enough air in. Yeah, so the pneumonia symptoms are still the most common presentation that would require them to come in and possibly be admitted to the hospital. Another listener asked a great question um, because in some other viruses, we can see other problems that result. So like infection around the heart muscle, which is called myocarditis, or infection in the CSF and around the brain, which is called meningitis or encephalitis. Are we seeing that COVID-19 can cause some of these other sequelae of the infection? And how often are we seeing that? Yeah, it's hard to put a number on it, but we certainly are. Just like any viral infection, there can be a variety of manifestations. And so you can get meningitis from this. You can get involvement of the brain or encephalitis. Um, it can cause um, uh, skin issues. So there are a variety of rashes have been described. Guillain-Barre syndrome, a partial paralysis has been described associated with COVID-19 infections. So yeah, you can get a whole bunch of different uh, manifestations. 
Okay. So all things to look out for, of course, even more rare than just the pneumonia. So not something you need to be, you know, panicking about. And again, like we've mentioned time and time again, all of these things have been less common in kids, um, the more severe presentations, thankfully, but always something to look out for. All of these can occur. Right. The next listener question that we got, which I thought was a really good just to bring up and remind all of us that temperatures are rising in our area. It's like 80 degrees today, and it's supposed to be getting up to closer to 90 soon. And some parents are asking about if they're the sole caretaker, if they are going to a grocery store, they don't want to leave their kids in a hot car, but they also have fear of bringing them into, you know, a place where they could be exposed. I personally think that this is a great question because a lot of these common things that were like, oh, we would never do that before COVID-19, but we're so scared that we're you know, thinking about it. Again, a hot car can be extremely dangerous for kids, especially little kids. And so you do not want to leave an infant, a pet in, in a hot car during this kind of weather. Um, we talked about no masks under two, but older kids, you could bring them in and wear a mask and make sure you're you're using, doing proper social distancing. I don't know. Do you have other thoughts, Dr. Dean, about that one? Yeah, no, exactly, exactly agree with you. Don't compromise on the things that we've already known and the common sense things. And so don't leave kids in a, in a, in a hot car at all. And you did a, a TV appearance on this uh, yeah, a year give, or two we ago. We might be able to find that and put, yeah. it, mm-hmm. put it on the website. Yeah, really dangerous during summer and something you always want to remember. So those were all of our questions. Please feel free to keep submitting them. And then we have Dr. Ellen back on the show today. Hi. Thanks for being here. Thank you again for having me. So we are going to be talking today about screen time in the time of COVID because we all know that the screen time rules that were previously set have somewhat gone out the window. Yes, definitely true. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us what pediatricians that have a focus on media, the American Academy of Pediatrics, is saying about screen time during COVID-19. Yeah, so these organizations are mostly acknowledging the reality of our situation. Like you said, we are all using our screens more. We're relying on them a lot for education, for work, for staying connected to people, and also for entertainment. So the American Academy of Pediatrics, they've previously recommended no screen time for kids under 18 months, and then for older kids, restricting screen time to like an hour a day. Um, So they've altered their guidelines recently. So they're recommending to preserve offline activities, especially activities that can help families calm down, communicate with each other, stay active, And I'd say this is important for everyone in the household, not just for kids. Um, And then again, like I've kind of um, brought up over and over, trying to stick to a routine uh, with screen time, but also forgiving yourself if this doesn't happen. Other things to consider um, that they've recommended are finding quality sources, um, especially if you're using screen time for education or curriculum, monitoring what your child is um, consuming as far as screen time, and then still having limits. So making sure that technology use in screen time isn't disrupting or displacing sleep, physical activity, reading, uh, downtime, or family connection. The AAP has a family media use plan that 
I would recommend to families that came into my clinic before this happened, where you can set sort of like a schedule for the day. And obviously that's going to be a little bit different because their schoolwork will involve screen time, but you could make adjustments to that so that you do still have some screen free time. And that way, when you get out of this, hopefully they know that there is a schedule and, you know, it's not just like their way or the highway, like they get it at any moment. Yeah. And I've seen that tool referenced a lot, especially with kind of in reference to COVID-19 and screen times to kind of just still talk to your family and talk to your kids about a plan. Are there any ways to make screen time more interactive or educational for kids? A couple episodes ago, I mentioned using curriculum guides from Common Sense Media or PBS Kids, and they have a lot of great suggestions about how to make things uh, interactive and educational, of course. Um, I think one of the best things you can do is to do it together. Um, It's more fun for everyone that way. Um, And it also helps you kind of like see what your kids are up to and keeping track of their learning. We've really been liking the Sacramento Library's online story times that they've been doing. They've been really fantastic really active and give they give parents a lot of great ideas of things to do um, outside of just the story times as well. And I think a lot of local libraries are doing similar things. So I'd recommend people visit their local library website. Um, and then also the New York Public Library has, is doing similar things as well. Dr. Ellen, I think one of the things that you mentioned this time, which I think is really important, is talking about parents really, you know, being gracious with themselves during this time. And, you know, their parents may not be, you know, natural teachers, and yet they're trying to fulfill that role. And, and um, it's important for them to maintain their primary relationship with the child and love them and have fun with them and not be the teacher. That's really somebody else's role. So really to, to have some forgiveness for them for themselves um, during this time. We're all figuring this out as we go along, (laughs) especially with teaching your own kids. Um, So I think just like you said, Dr. Dean, trying to come at it with the mindset of exploring together, I think is really, really helpful. And honestly, more fun than coming at it from (laughs) the mindset of like, you're the teacher now. So is there a way to tell if your kid needs a break from screens? Is there anything that is like, okay, maybe it's time to turn off the video game or step away from Netflix? Yeah, so I think you can um, kind of think about how you feel when you have consumed too much, you know, (laughs) watched one too many Netflix episodes or, you know, scrolled through your phone for a little bit too long. Um, So I think if... It's looking like your kid has pent up energy, if they're getting more frustrated, acting out some more. I think those would all be reasons to maybe take a step back from the TV or the iPad or the phone. If it is safe for you to get outside, then I think that is a great counterbalance to screen time. Um, So if you're fortunate enough to have a backyard or some other outdoor space kind of within your house area that you can um, escape to making a water table, doing finger paints, you know, putting up a bird feeder or doing a little bit of gardening is great. Um, And then you can always try like a nature walk in a park where you're socially distancing from other people and, you know, using cloth masks as recommended. 
Well, those are all great suggestions. Thank you for teaching us about screen time and how we can all kind of work to stay sane while making sure we're using it for educational use if we can, but also understanding that this is just, you know, it's an unprecedented time. And so we allow for forgiveness and increased screen time, and we will all figure it out as we go along. So thank you for joining us. This was our April 22nd, 2020 COVID-19 update. Given some things have been slowing down in the news, we're seeing some fewer listener questions come in. So we're going to space the update to every other week for now. Of course, if any new information comes up, we will do an update for you. And feel free to reach out if you feel strongly about keeping it weekly. And we will do our best. But we will check in with you next time. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 